morning we're continuing our study in Revelation in the letters to the seven churches. So this morning we're going to have Revelation 2, 1 through 7 read, and we'll pray. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the, among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and you, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, dear God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we come together and we close your word. Um, here we have uh, letters to the churches instructing the churches. Um, no more explicit uh, section could be laid before us. So I pray that we would think about our congregation here, uh, the whole covenant of God, the whole church of God, the body of Christ, um, how you would instruct us and how we would think of our function in the world you have of us here and what you would have of us and how we should act on a daily basis in accordance to your word. Amen. As our series is taking us through the letters to the seven churches, just a quick reminder, we spent a couple weeks in Revelation starting the way that John starts with us, reminding us and pointing us to a true picture of who Jesus is, the promises from the Trinity, and then narrows into Jesus as our faithful witness, that one who testified perfectly to the plan of God, the one who is our example of the first and faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of kings on earth. We see his sovereignty comes to mind this week as we see the moves by Russia and Ukraine and to think that God is the ruler of kings on earth and so we pray for peace, we pray for the churches there. I saw a video of the, a group of believers in Ukraine singing, He Will Hold, hold Me Fast, same soon song that we sing here often. And then we looked last week at John has given a vision. Here we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. And before he moves into the letters, John receives this vision, this picture of Jesus Christ. And he is told to write down what he sees. A hard task, but he is told to do it. Write down what he sees in order that we could read it and we might see this as well. As we talked about briefly in Sunday school, in this revelation of Jesus Christ, not a physical de- description is given, but he paints for us this picture that blows you away with the majesty and the grandeur and the power of Jesus. That the Ancient of Days, the white hair full of wisdom, the all-knowing, all-wise, and at the same time, those holy fire, the holy eyes burning with fire, that youthful energy and passion, as it were, to bring about His purposes. Feet of burnished bronze, as every other kingdom rises and falls, every en- other empire rises and falls, the feet of clay and iron, 
not the kingdom of Christ, which will not fail. Feet of burnished bronze. Then it says that his voice goes out, it thunders like roaring waters, and from his voice comes that sharp two-edged sword, effectively communicative, effectively bringing about all that he has purposed and planned. And so now John is going to turn, and he is going to encourage the churches that we need to overcome to these churches in the latter days, between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ, where we find ourselves right now. We need to overcome. And if we're going to overcome, we must first understand who our King is, who our Christ is. John, when he sees that, he falls down and is dead. And then as dead, but we see the tender mercy of Jesus as he reaches down and lays his hand upon the shoulder of John. So fear not. We fear not, not because... Jesus isn't awe-inspiring and terrible and holy and unapproachable in our own sin. We fear not because He is for us. We fear not because He laid down His life for us. He now intercedes for us and He stands for us. And so this is the picture of Christ that we have in our minds, the head of the church. And now he's going to come with that in our mind to the letters to the seven churches. These are actual letters to actual churches with these actual events taking place in them. And yet at the same time, they are representative of the church in the latter days, us included. The seven churches we see in Revelation is that idea of fullness, that perfect picture, sort of a full picture of the churches. And so it's going to represent to us the challenges, the strengths, the weaknesses that we see grow up in the church, what we must celebrate, what we must be wary of, what we must repent of and change. And so it serves as a representation. And so we'll hit these seven churches to kind of make a uh, horseshoe-type shape through Asia Minor, starting with you know, there's a ton of books on how to build a church, the health of a local church, how to be a healthy church, how to grow a church. And just in the last decade, they've discovered thousands of them. And then some of them are good. I've read some of them. Yet often, they pop up and they only are relevant for like three or four years because there's a very narrow it factor that they're trying to get you to accomplish as a local church. Something new, something unique, something that's going to be set you apart from, from everybody else. And they often go by the wayside or you see the collapse of the churches, collapse of those pastors. We've written them. one book called Dangerous Calling about pastors. I think there's four or five blurbs on the, the back and within like five or six years of that book being released and leave half of those blurbs in the back from men who have fallen away from the faith. So they rise and they fall. So, so it's better maybe to go back and to read those older books by men and women who have been dead a long time. <clears throat> and there's a, a different weightiness towards their understanding of the mission of the church, their, their picture of the grandeur of the king and the head who leads this church. But as Jim mentioned in his prayer, 
even better to go further back to the book written to the church. And we are told if you have ears to hear, you need to hear what Jesus in his final canonized revelation of himself would say to the church. If you are going to overcome, here's a full picture of these seven churches. Here's a full picture of what you need to hear, of what you need to see. Let me give you four pieces of advice for myself and you as we go through these letters to the seven churches. I'll remind us of them. Four things that I think will help us. One, we want to listen to all of the churches. Listen to all of the letters. Pastor Adam, several months ago, asked me to start thinking about this series and getting ready for it. So I've read about it and thought about it. I have to admit, the first thing you do is really focus in on the church where their weakness is your strength. It makes you feel good. Jesus is pointing out their weakness. He's like, oh, that's my strength. I'm good to go. We've got to narrow in. We are meant to see all of these letters. At times we'll see ourselves in the strengths. At times we'll see ourselves in the weaknesses. And either way, we need to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us. God sets it up that way, even in our own passage here. It's the end of each letter. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Don't be listening for the person next to you. <laughs> like, this is what they need to hear. Redeemer, let us not listen for the church down the street. Let us listen for what we need to hear. I heard an old pastor say one time, I don't remember exactly, but somebody respected that he ruined many a sermon listening with someone else's ears. It's easy to apply it to someone else. Let's hear it individually. Let's hear it for ourselves, what he says to all the churches. Second piece of advice or key is we need to be both encouraged and challenged by both the accusations and the commendations, the good and the bad. As we go through it, some personalities are going to be just to look at the good. Some are going to be to look at the bad. We're not going to mirror or reflect any of these churches exactly. We'll align more. So we need to hear what he, what he compliments when he says this is good. We need to hear that and be instructed and encouraged by it. When he points out the weaknesses, we need to hear that and be encouraged and instructed by it. Let us listen to both the strengths and the weaknesses. A third key. This will be especially important this morning. That God does not tear down our strengths in order to highlight our weaknesses. By that, I mean it's not, as Adam and I joke about sometimes, the praise sandwich. You ever gotten one of those? Someone has something they want to say to you. And so they start with, you know, you're one of the nicest guys that I've ever met. You're so great. What they really want to say to you is, this thing bored me to death. And then they follow up with, That's not what Jesus is doing here. It's like, we're all complimented, but then I'll say what I really want to say. He means it in the, in the complimenting. And he also is not saying that the way to fix your weakness is to bring down your strength. If you're very hospitable, but you're not a very courageous person, the way to fix your courage is to be less hospitable. We function like that sometimes. You see this pendulum swing 
within churches. You see this pendulum swing in denominations of swinging way over here, and they get this right. There's this movement. Now it's going up. So let's swing over here and forget about all this. It's not even really about balance. It's like, well, Don't undermine the strength. We want them to both exist. And then the, the fourth is just as you hear it individually, your personality is going to play into it. I say it this way, and that when we hit uh, just say hospitality or something like that, that might be a giftedness of yours. That might be a natural inclination of yours is to be a hospitable person. That is good. And that is fine. You might be better at that than something else. But you need to recognize that at one level that the church is made up of all different parts and strengths. And yet at the same time, just because you have an inclination or a strength, it doesn't exist. Yet it does not excuse us that <clears throat> seeing weaknesses, we don't tear down strength in order to address weaknesses. We hear both what is good and bad and own that and listen to all the churches. So the church at Ephesus, it's appropriate that the first letter is to the church at Ephesus. It's the first on the route, but it's also... The, the most important culturally, religiously, a leading city of that time. So commerce would have been big. It would have been a bustling, important city. It also would have had a religious atmosphere that was very pagan and very pluralistic. We actually know a decent amount about the church of Ephesus. Paul planted that church. You read about it in Acts 19. He's there nearly three years and few of his co-workers building and establishing that church. Later, he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, one of the most theologically, doctrinally rich letters that we have laying out our salvation. And in that, he commends the church for their faith, for their love, that they have a great reputation. When you come to the end of Paul's writing in Timothy, he's writing a final letter to Timothy, he sends Timothy to Ephesus. And you begin to see that there's some cracks that have, have shown up in the church. There's, there's a lot of false teaching around. They need to be strengthened. There's a lack of leadership. They need to be strengthened through the teaching. And so Timothy goes and pastors that church. From extra-biblical historical accounts, John, we know, has a close relationship with the church there. It seems that he served as someone as the bishop of Ephesus his later years of life, so John would be closely related to this church as well. So we know a decent amount about the church, and so John jumps right in. 
each of these letters follows a similar format. You'll see it come out. We won't take time to look at every piece of it. But it starts by first drawing on a character of Jesus that is taken from that initial vision that we saw back in chapter 1. So here John reminds us, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, seven stars describes the seven angels and seven churches. We don't look deeply into that, whether it's a guardian angel or a minister or a spirit, whatever it is, if God is holding that church in his hand, he is in control. And at the same time, Jesus Christ walks about in the midst of the land. In our midst right now. And it's the Jesus Christ whose voice thunders, whose voice goes out like a two edged sword, who is wise, whose eyes burn. That Jesus is in our midst. Yeah, that, that's just having a effect on the anticipation we have in joining together. In our participation, hearing the word that Christ is in our midst. And so he begins with that promise that reality, and then he goes to the encouragement. The first thing we see about the church is that they are a hard-working church. I know your work, your toil, your patience, endurance. The people are diligent in the work of the ministry. This is nothing to scoff at. This isn't just a throwaway compliment. They are hard workers. They have a testimony of diligence. It's not comprised of, of a lot of people who sort of sit on the sidelines and just sort of watch things happen. They're getting in there. They're working. They're spending their time. They're spending their energy, their resource, resources. He sees their labor and their toil. They are working hard. And Jesus recognizes this and commends it. The second thing he compliments is that they have endured. They have endured in this work. I know your works, your toil, and your patience Endurance again in chapter in verse three it talks about enduring patiently. <clears throat> There's a play on words here in, in the Greek that I think is interesting enough to bring it up. He uses the same Greek word here when in verse two he talks about your soil or your labor. Then in verse three, the not growing weary is the same word only in a different different form. So it's the idea of I see you're laboring, but you're not getting labor. I see you're, you're, you're burning with work, but you're not burning out. But they are enduring. There's not, there's not just a momentary burst of work and energy and then things get tough and that's it. But they are patiently enduring in the work. What a testimony. When you're not lazy, but you're also not getting burnt out and exhausted, that you're like, are laboring hard but not growing labored and weary. That is the testimony that we want. That's the testimony they have in the face of in the face of Ephesus, in the opposition where to claim exclusively that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth in the middle of a pluralistic pagan society is not going to go over well. And yet they are hard at work and they are enduring in it. I think it, I get the picture of if Tom Brokaw wrote that book, The Greatest Generation, the World War II Generation, with your grandparents, great grandparents, who went through for 40 years work in that factory, and they just went and they did it. And they worked hard and they were loyal and, and there wasn't much complaining. And that's just, that's how they are. 
something to be said for that of a church of people who work in the ministry. Don't just stand on the sidelines and not watch. People are willing to spend their time, their energy, their resources. I think it's, I don't want to miss this chance to, to thank and encourage those people who pull behind the scenes. Well, he's, for me, I'm up front, so the pastor, he's always getting recognized. We have a whole month of pastor appreciation, all right? There's not a cleaning person appreciation month. There's not the guy who comes early to make coffee appreciation month. You only know about him when the coffee's not there. There's a lot of people who serve week in and week out, who spend their time, who give themselves as prayer warriors and who pray for people, who spend their energy give resources, people who are very generous when needs arise and no one really ever knows about it. And I know it can be hard sometimes to continue in that work, especially when it doesn't feel like it's very often complimented or appreciated. Back in the kids, no one sees you. Whatever it is, let me just encourage you here, Jesus sees it. And it blesses his heart. It pleases him. And he compliments it. And he says, I see it. I see that you are enduring, that you are working, whether anyone else sees it or not. We really should take heart in that, that Christ is in our midst and he sees our labors. And it should be rewarding and motivating in that way. <clears throat> the last thing that he compliments them on is that they are orthodox. They are orthodox. They are theologically precise. Look at the way he says it in verse 2. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. Later in verse 6, it says, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, whom I also hate. They have tested the teaching of these apostles. Apparently, false teachers are, are arising. They're coming in, trying to influence them. They're testing them, testing them by what they're saying. Does it match up with the Word of God? Testing them by their conduct. Does their conduct align with what they're teaching and saying? Again, this young church bombarded with all kinds of, of paganism and pluralistic teaching, and they are testing it and they are holding fast. And even in the face of opposition. They are theologically precise, and they're not giving ground. The Nicolaitans, there's a lot probably to be said about them, but they, they're kind of the sneaky ones of the bunch who don't outright reject Jesus and his teaching. Who would claim somewhat of, of what he says, but to say that he came to liberate you from, you know, he came to enlighten So, not liberation from sin so much, but liberation from, you know, sexual, uh, sexual things that would seem bad. Let liberate you from, basically, he's come to let you engage with all the pagan things that are taking place. Be enlightened enough. You don't need to take anything from that. There's a way to do it. And also, we are the dynamic. Or you name the cult 
And so they come in, they want just a little bit of Jesus, but the Jesus enlightens us enough to know how to uh, participate in all of these other religions and participate in the idolatrous and even sexual uh, immorality that's part of that worship in a way that is pleasing. Jesus says, I've seen you take the work of the sickness of earth and come in and pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hate that too. I think we sometimes think that, like, <clears throat> intolerance is like a new thing that, that people are accused of. It seems like it was even back here being an intolerant people. And yet, you, you see at some level that they can't bear with the works of those who do evil. They hate the works of Nicolaus and this, and, and God, Jesus raises them to that intolerance of false doctrine. There's another play on words there that's interesting. It says that the words they can't bear, they can't put up, they can't bear with the false teaching. But later, that they are bearing as much accusation for the name of Jesus. I think how flip that is for us often, that we are so worried about not being accepted and affirmed and maybe feeling irrelevant that we're hardly able to bear with any criticism or any uh, fear of man. And so we quickly kind of just, you know, change what we're saying a little bit. Here's the exact opposite. They can't bear with this false teaching that they're willing to bear whatever for the sake of Jesus. And so you have here this picture of a church with a fairly glowing report card to this point. They are theologically Christ. They believe the teaching. They work hard at the teaching of Christ of getting it right. They work hard at defending it against false teachers. And they hate the, the immoral practices, idolatrous worship that is coming at them, the perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they work hard. They take care in that. And you can see <clears throat> that this is nothing to just be roll your eyes at. This is a true strength. Something that God calls His church to is to work hard, to endure, to be theologically accurate and precise and on the lookout and ready to defend the truth. But then the attending pitfall that comes to your mind, the attending temptation that comes with a theologically precise and body and one that would defend the truth is just what you would think they have lost their first love. Again, remember, it's not, so don't worry about theology. Don't worry about what's not. This love, that's not it. To continue on the things that you want to do. But here's what he has against them. They've lost their first love. They're so positioned and geared up to and the truth against those from the outside that they've become so focused in on being precise in their theology and not letting anything else creep in that it's now become a tool where they, they can't deal with the imperfections of anybody around them. They seem to have grown more judgmental, less forgiving. There's different ideas exactly what it means that they've lost their first love. Is it that they were the love that they had at first? Is it that they've lost their love for Jesus? 
is it that they're defending the truth, but they kind of lost their passion and love for the truth? Is it that they lost their love for the church, for one another, for the world outside? I, I think we can pretty clearly define, at least in mind, that the love that they've lost is, it is twofold. It's a love for one another within the church, and then a love for those outside the church. As a lampstand, that bright light, that bright testimony of the gospel to those outside the church, to be winsome, to be compassionate, to be loving, they've lost that. And I don't think you have to draw a hard line between that and loving one another. John himself is telling us that the world will know Let me give just a couple reasons I think this is, is the love he's talking about. First, almost always, in the Old Testament, especially New Testament as well, when Christians are, are said to have lost their love for Christ, it's a picture of, of idolatry, of, of abandoning faithfulness to their covenant partner. That's not the picture you get here of this church of Ephesus, is that they've lost a love for Christ, that they've been adulterous or turned away from Him in that picture. Secondly, this love is it's not just a loving feeling, you will. It seems to be a call to deeds of, of love, actionable love. Look how he says it when he calls them back in verse 5. He says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works that you first did. And to return to the love is to return to those works of love that you've called them to. First John 3, John, other places, it's clear that our, our, our light, our, the brightness of our light, is found in deeds of love towards others. So the church seems to have lost sort of any sort of outward vision or purpose beyond defending the truth. We're working hard and doing in the, in the gospel and the truth, but they've lost that outward vision of love for one another, of a forgiving spirit for one another, of forbearing and love with one another, of seeing one another grow and ignore together. God warns that we're and that idea of that light, that bright light, they're guarding the light, defending it, but it's not shining brightly in a winsome, compassionate way to those outside the church. They lost their first love. They lost their guard they had at first. And you'll see here that when he's telling us that we are overcoming, it does take the sort of enduring hard work. It does take this theological precision and, and not being pulled away by the false teaching of the world. But to be an overcomer also takes love for one another. It also demands that of us. You see how seriously it's taken here. 
Verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That is, if you are, are taking God and you are hiding it and there is no love for one another, you're hiding it, there's no outward projection of that light. If you're hiding that light, God didn't just take it from you. He will remove your lampstand. First is to remember. You see there, verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. They had that testimony in Ephesians 1, you see it, of love one for another, being a light to those around them. He doesn't remember that. I think he's also calling us to remember. I'm not telling you to work up in your own strength, just to try to you know, work it up as well, but remember the picture of Christ. He is holding you in his hand. He is in your midst. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who loves us and free us from sin. He is there to us as a model of when we look after him day after him. And he is the source, the energy, the grace for us to be able to accomplish what is expected of us. Don't forget Jesus Christ in your midst. Don't forget that He holds you in your hands. Remember from where He first fell. And then He says, "Repent." It means change direction. You know that. To repent. Rent's not really a word of emotion. I think often that's what we connect with it. We think of being repentant as being feeling sorry. Repent is much more of a, a word of, of action. Typically. It's Almost always, there's some emotion that is combined with that. Of a sorrow for your sin. But it's a word of action. It's not just look and see like, wow, I really am selfish and I've got it theologically right, but I, I don't like anybody. I don't do anything I don't want to do for anybody. And I don't care about my neighbor anymore. Not really right that. No, it, it's a call to action. It's a Often, with loving neighbors, the action precedes the feeling. Repent. Do what is right. John Stott, in this passage, he, he gives this illustration with repentance. He says, So many of us admit to our present state 
but we wait for some emotional upheaval to set us right. We are like children who fall in a puddle and sit in the mud waiting for someone to pick them up. But they should just get up at once. So should we, just as soon as we are conscious of falling. And that's the call. It's not wait there until you really feel like it, until you just feel inspired to love, or you find someone who's come across your path who is easy to love. No, get up and do something. And he says to return. Just remember, repent, return to those first words. We remember Jesus Christ holds us in our hands. He stands in our midst. It's not a hopeless situation for the theologically minded, hard-working, enduring church. The one that lacks love for one another and love for others. It's not hopeless. Recognize it. Repent and return to doing those works. Not when you really feel like it, <laughs> but now. Not in your own conjured up strength, but in the grace of the Lord who holds you in his hand. And then listen to the attending promise. Verse 7 He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just emphasizing, you need to hear this. We all need to hear this. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Eternal life with God. There's really two pictures being presented here. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. That, that idea of forgiveness. And then the consequential or attending promise of forgiveness is the presence of God. Forgiveness in the presence of God. That's the promise to the one who overcomes. And the one who overcomes is that one who has both that theological provision and a love for neighbor, a love for those inside the church. I think John himself is a beautiful example of this. We'll close with this. He has two sort of monikers that have been attached to his name. You can think of them. One, he was a son of thunder. Bold defender of the truth. He's also known as the Apostle of Love. His gospel, his letters are full of these commands to love. By the end of his epistles, his messages are simple as about how children love one another. thankful for your word. We're thankful that you are in our midst and when you speak, your voice thunders. Lord, as we start to hear the story of the Christ, the most Jewish work in our lives, Lord, might we receive individually, and might we receive corporately what we need to hear. Help us just not to be too defensive. Help us not to think for the church down the street. Church up to you. Help us to hear. Because this is a 